you all, uh, so there's really, really interesting wedding practices all over the world. I think it, as someone's probably written a book about wedding practices in different places all around the world, it would be fascinating to get our hands on that, a book like that. You know, uh, Thelma Zerbik, uh, a member of our own church, of course, is from Nigeria. And I know in Nigeria, when Thelma got married, I didn't realize that a send forth was a really important ceremony that was really part of the whole wedding, which is basically she's being sent forth from her father's household to be married. It happens at a separate date. I'm looking at Serena. <laughs> yeah, empty. It's different according to tribe. It's different according to tribe. There you go. So it would be really different from tribe to tribe. Uh, you know, uh, a couple years ago, we had two interns from Zambia and... Uh, they have something leading up to the wedding, which is called a kitchen party, which is basically where people bring, um, you know, appliances and all kinds of pots and pans and huge bags of rice and goats and things like that to equip the kitchen for the bride and groom. You know, I remember when uh, another member of our church, two members of our church got married, um, Jason and Sarah Thomas. Um, Sarah is from England. Now, I'm from the United States, and I usually think of England as being similar to the United States, but when I officiated that wedding, I found out that uh, if you're in, in England, oftentimes you have to sign the registry uh, right in the middle of the wedding ceremony. That's not something that's done in, in America. So, yeah, yeah, and, and you've done that too, right? So lots and lots of really different uh, wedding practices all around the world. S Christian scripture doesn't teach specific practices for weddings. Of course, Christian wedding practices, they should be drawn from general biblical principles, and there's some freedom when scripture doesn't give us specific commands. A Christian wedding ceremony is a worship service. That's why we sing Christian songs and hymns uh, when we marry two people together. But scripture does teach us all that we need to know about marriage. So that when we take what his word tells us about marriage and we walk in the spirit together, we can have marriages that please and honor God. I want to teach you tonight and tomorrow morning only what scripture explicitly or implicitly teaches about marriage. Now, culture says things about marriage too, doesn't it? Culture as opposed to scripture. Sometimes culture says that marriage is mandatory. You have to get married if you're going to honor and not shame your family. Secular culture often says that marriage will eventually be a trap. Marriage will restrict your freedom. Marriage will grow boring. You will want out, so don't get in. But God says marriage is beautiful and wonderful. It's part of His design. And so I hope you go away from this conference with a renewed desire to search God's Word about marriage, your marriage or the marriage that you desire. And I hope you go away from this conference praying for your marriage and taking actions to see your marriage conform more to God's plans for your marriage. And if you're single, 
I hope that you go away with a better understanding of marriage as it should be. God might bring you into marriage. And even if he doesn't, if you understand marriage, you'll be better able to serve your married brothers and sisters in the church. But first I want to say something actually about singleness. Strangely enough. From Genesis and the rest of Scripture all the way to Revelation, marriage seems to be the frequently chosen vocation of most people. But Paul teaches that singleness can be good and even better than marriage. He says this in 1 Corinthians 7. He calls it a gift in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 through 8. This is what he says. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Singleness is good. Paul is even making the argument here that it's better. Now, of course, what does culture and the world say about singleness? Well, it says, stay single, but be sexually active. And then you've got the best of both worlds. That's what the world says. It, in many of our families of origin, if a child were to tell their parents that they have the gift of singleness because they want to be freed up to serve the Lord in a unique way, those parents might automatically think that you're homosexual they'd at least be terribly disappointed in many cases. But Paul says that singleness is good. Unfortunately, sometimes even Christian leaders speak about single people like they're not whole people. They might say something like, when you find a spouse, you'll be whole. You'll find your other half. I remember sitting in a wedding and one of my colleagues, ministry colleagues, was sitting on the other side. There was a single woman uh, who was doing ministry uh, with us on a team of campus ministers. She was single. And the pastor that was leading and officiating this wedding said something to the effect of, well, you've each found your other half. You each now are completing one another. And my ministry partner turned to this single friend of ours and he said, in a low voice, I don't think you're half of a person. I think you're a whole person. It's unfortunate when pastors speak in that way. It's just not true. Single people are not half a person. You are a whole person. Marriage is not two halves joining to make a whole. It's two wholes becoming one. So single, singleness is a great option in life, actually. Jesus was single. The pastor, Timothy, whom Paul writes to in the New Testament, he was single. Many people think Paul doesn't like marriage because of what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but that's not true. Paul's addressing 
specific questions raised by the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7 isn't all of Paul's theology about marriage. Here's something to remember, though, that's really important. I want you to hear this. Being single is not necessarily the same thing as having the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness implies having the fruit of the spirit of self-control related to sexual desires so that you're able to walk in sexual purity in both mind and body and so devote your time and energies to serving God and God's people without getting married. All people, all people, both married and single, should pray for and work to see the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control with regard to their sexuality, be born in them. Getting married doesn't banish lust from a person's heart. But many struggle with sexual temptation and yet are not able to marry for one reason or another. They desire marriage, but the Lord hasn't provided that opportunity for them yet in their lives. The Bible theologian Thomas Schreiner says, when the, when the good desires of our hearts are not met, the Bible teaches that we are experiencing trials or afflictions. That's a form of suffering. So Romans 5, 3, and 4 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. When marriage is desired, but God doesn't provide it, then singleness is a trial. But if you find yourself in that situation in life, you must remember that God is with you in that trial. God works in and through us in the midst of afflictions just as those Romans verses teach us. And listen, if you remember to those verses, what's produced when we rejoice in our sufferings. Suffering ultimately produces hope in us as we trust in God and we see Him to be faithful. And single people as well need to remember that married people often experience trials and afflictions through their marriage as well. Now, why is it important for a single person to know about marriage? Well, for one, it's part of God's Word, and you should seek to know everything in God's Word if you're a Christian. Secondly, some of your Christian church members and family members are married, and as a Christian, you should be interested to help them have godly marriages. You can only help them if you know what a godly marriage is. On Wednesday night, just uh, two nights ago, Chi-Chi came over and had dinner with Joanne and I. And after we had asked her a number of questions about how she was doing, she said, how are you all doing? How are the two of you doing together? Now, I took that as a question about our marriage. So I talked to her about our marriage and about how other things were going on in our life. I really felt loved and cared for by Chi-Chi when she asked that question. She absolutely has permission to ask that question. And I appreciate it. Third, maybe you won't be single forever. Understanding God's plan for marriage 
will help you evaluate who you should or shouldn't marry. You should only want to marry someone who's a Christian, of course, and has a biblical view of marriage and the personal character ready to embrace the challenges of marriage. Another reason, a miserable marriage is just as much, if not more, of an affliction as unwanted singleness. And you would do well to know how to pray for the marriages in our church and other marriages that you know of. Lastly, if you don't understand biblical marriage, you will either look down on it or you'll end up idolizing it. One of the two. So it's good for everyone, married and single, to know about marriage and what the Bible says about it. Now, of course, there's a lot more to teach about singleness, and I need to leave something for that sermon I promised Uh to you. Um, But this conference is primarily about marriage, and so I'm going to press on. We lived in Dubai when the Burj Khalifa was being built. And if I scroll back through my photo history, I can see these pictures of it gradually getting taller and taller and taller. It was really interesting, especially as a former engineer, to go over and watch the different stages of it being built. And of course, the first thing that they had to build was the foundation. And what they did was they dug an enormous hole in the ground, and they poured huge columns of concrete that actually, I believe, rested on bedrock. That's how far down they had to go. The foundation had to be perfect to hold up a building that's almost a kilometer tall. If a building doesn't have a strong foundation, eventually it will collapse or simply be unsafe. Gaining and keeping in view a good understanding of marriage's foundations, as revealed in Scripture, is crucial for us to live out our marriages that not only last lifetime, but they honor and please God all along the way. So we should consider the foundational texts about marriage before we consider what action steps to take in order to better please the Lord in our marriages. We're going to look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Now we're going to look at Genesis 1 first, then we're going to look at Genesis 2. So it's a lot of text. These are incredibly foundational texts. They probably every phrase a sermon could be preached on them. Uh, So I'm not going to linger too long in them. But look first at Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I just have one observation from this text. Men and women are made in God's image. All people are designed to fulfill a representative role for God in creation. Husbands. Your wife is an image bearer, no matter how many of your flaws you may know about. Wives, your husband, 
bears the image of God, no no matter how many ways you can list of how he falls short of being like Christ. Men and women both have the same built-in dignity and broadly speaking, the same God-given responsibilities mandated by the Lord. Now, I find that when I think of Joanne in that light, she's made in the image of God, that this is fundamentally who she is and what she was designed to do, that it causes me to approach the challenges and the struggles of marriage thinking less about myself and more about her. How do I interact with her as an image bearer? Now, if I want to do her spiritual good, I need to understand that to love her is to assist her in fulfilling her role as an image bearer. That's fundamental. Now, we're going to come back to doing your wife's spiritual good more later. But never forget, your husband or your wife is an image bearer. And every single person is an image bearer as well. Of course, I don't think I need to say it, but Genesis 2 is also foundational as well. So we're going to look at Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Turn there if you have your Bibles. I have three observations from this text, but first let's read it, 18 through 25. It's a little longer. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now this text is really deep. (laughs) But just three observations. Number one. Men and women are the same in some ways, but they're very, very different in others. Both image bearers, of course, both given the mandate from chapter 1 to represent God. They're both bone of the same bone and flesh of the same flesh. They're, They're made of the same stuff, but they're very different too. Man is made from dust. Woman is made from the side of man. Man was made first. Woman was made second. She's brought to him and he names her. He's to leave his family in order to hold fast to her, not the other way around. Differences between a husband and a wife are wonderful opportunities for God honoring fruitfulness to be displayed 
which is only possible when the two of them partner together. There are purposes to be fulfilled through the marriage union. The husband and the wife need the other one to bear the fruit that God has planned for them to bear. Every marriage is to bear fruit, not to meet the need to be loved. The final goal of Adam and Eve's marriage is not for them to find love and companionship in one another, although that will be a byproduct, a wonderful byproduct. But as wonderful as things were in chapter 2 of Genesis, unfortunately, chapter 3 comes along. Adam and Eve sinned. And at that point, their differences become footholds for Satan to drive them apart. They both hid from God. Adam blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. There were excuses everywhere. Sin plus differences oftentimes equals disunity and dysfunction. Sin plus differences equals disunity and dysfunction. If there's disunity in your marriage, it's because of sin of some sort. Disunity is not neutral for married people. It involves sin of some sort. It could be sins of commission, sins that you actually take action or words that you've spoken. Or it could be sins of omission, things that you've not done that you needed to do. And to not do them is a sin. If there's disunity in your marriage, do you tend to say, well, it's normal, or that, you know, it just needs a little work. Well, maybe it needs a little work because there's a little sin. Or maybe if your spouse says there's something wrong in your marriage relationship, do you wish that they wouldn't make such a big deal about it? Do you feel, really, it's not really that bad. Sin plus differences equals disunity and dysfunction. So it's important for me as a husband to remember that the differences between Joanne and I are opportunities for God's designed kingdom work to be revealed when we walk in God's ways together, not in sin. How many times do we as husbands, and I'll probably speak to husbands a little more than I speak to wives in these sessions tonight and tomorrow morning. How many times do we husbands praise God for the ways that our wife is different than us? Not many, right? Except, of course, those of us who can't cook and when our wife can. You praise God for that difference at least two or three times a day. <laughs> Many of the differences that can lead to disunity and strife in our marriage are things that we should often be praising God for if they aren't sin in and of themselves. Men and women are the same in many ways, but God made us different. And we should praise God for that. The second observation is, 
Their one flesh union describes marital unity and it is accompanied by joy. Now, it's commonly understood by Bible scholars that the one flesh union of the man and the woman at least describes their sexual union. Which, by the way, I should mention that um, from time to time, at least in these first two talks, I might refer to their sexual union. Tomorrow in the second talk, I'm going to refer to it a lot, and I'm going to be very frank. I won't be graphic, but I'll be very frank and direct. So you might consider that if you have children that you want to have come in. Now, because they're described as becoming one flesh, it means at least that they had sexual intercourse. I don't know if you've all heard that before, but that's at least what that means. But it does mean more than that as well. Being one flesh describes a holistic unity between the husband and the wife. To be one flesh with between a husband and wife is, is certainly physical, but it means that you were designed for whole life unity with your spouse. Bound together, working for God's purposes in concert with one another, loving one another, enjoying one another, and experiencing joy as a byproduct. Now, of course, we see that when Adam saw his wife, he rejoiced with a poem of loving praise. He was excited. And it says as well, they were naked and not ashamed. Their intimacy brought joy and it came freely, without shame. Now, single people don't experience that kind of unity but there is unity to be experienced for single people. Unity in the body of Christ and unity with other brothers and sisters and fellowship with them. Our goal for all of us who are married will be to, by the power of God and the gospel, work toward holistic marital unity expressed, of course, in our physical relationship with each other, but as well through the rest of our lives. So their one flesh union describes marital unity. The third observation that I want to make is that marriage is God's idea and it's for Him. Christopher Ash's wonderful book about marriage, and I believe it's back on the book table back there, our bookshelf, I should say maybe, <laughs> is titled Married for God. And one thing that we should remember is that whatever is in Genesis 1 and 2 is fundamental to who we are and who we're to understand God to be. And one thing that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that everything that God does is for His glory. It's for His praise. It's for His honor. It's for His fame. The planets, the earth, the animals are created for His glory. God creates the first man and woman for His glory. He brings them together as husband and wife for His glory. Their marriage is for something bigger and more important than their own satisfaction. Even though Adam is deeply satisfied, we could even say thrilled with excitement, when Eve is brought to him. 
So our marriages are first and foremost meant to glorify God. Your marriage is for God's glory. Christopher Ash says this, As we rejoice with the lovers in the garden, we must not forget that there is work to be done. The garden needs gardening. God's world needs watchful care and careful work. Those who are single will serve in many fruitful ways possible only for the unattached, but for those who are married, this work will be done together as a couple. Another author puts it this way, marriage isn't for your happiness, but it's for your holiness. And as you grow in holiness, of course, you bring about more glory for God. So he's essentially saying the same thing. It's to serve God's purposes in you and in the world. We must seek Him and His wisdom for our marriages in order for them to serve the purposes that He intended so that we together, husbands and wives together, bear kingdom fruit, kingdom of God fruit. And when I say kingdom of God fruit, I mean things like the husband and the wife growing in godliness and holiness, spiritual maturity, and their marriage working together to do good in the world and in the church in particular, helping others grow in the faith, doing good deeds to the brethren, sharing the gospel far and wide. Are you regularly considering how glorifying to God your marriage is? Do you look for instruction from God in His Word about how your marriage should work or what its purpose is? Or do you think about your marriage mainly based on what culture tells you? Brothers and sisters, we're married for God and that is how we should evaluate our marriage. Ask the question, is my marriage serving God's purposes in God's ways? Now, I have one more passage that we want to look at. Just two more verses, and these are in the New Testament. And it's in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. We're going to come back to Ephesians chapter 5 tomorrow morning when we come back together again and look at 22 or through 32. But for tonight, I want to just look at this really, these really foundational two verses, 31 and 32 in Ephesians chapter 5. There's so much to learn from this passage, of course, but I only have one comment for it. Let me read it to you. The verses. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's the observation. Every marriage is intended to show the world the union between Christ and the church. Every marriage. That union, that saving relationship between us and our Savior is made possible by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And marriage should, above all, take a gospel shape. It should be a beautiful portrait of God's redemption of His people. 
Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved so that we could be forgiven of our sin, counted righteous, and brought into union with Himself, the one who is holy and pure. In short, your marriage union is intended to reveal and display something about the union between Christ and the church. Even non-Christians who are married are in a covenant relationship, whether they recognize it or not, designed by God that in some distant and distorted way points to the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Even non-Christians that are married. They're doing something that God designed. Maybe they're not doing it well. Maybe it's distorted and dysfunctional. Surely it is if they don't understand the gospel. So really, one of the most important questions to ask about your marriage is, do you understand and believe the gospel? It's not only crucial for your salvation, but it's crucial to having a marriage that serves God God's purposes because you want your marriage to be gospel shaped the husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church the wife submitting to her husband as the church submits to Christ in response Paul said this is a mystery and it's profound think about that for a moment think about it just if you look back in Genesis Two, when God created marriage, of course, God knew that Adam and Eve would sin in Genesis 3 and that all of humanity would need a Savior to come into the world to die a sacrificial death for us so that we could be saved from the punishment for our sin. But even before they sinned, God created marriage to point the way to His saving work through Jesus Christ. It wasn't an afterthought. God didn't say to Himself, oh, they've sinned. Oh, but look, marriage, it kind of looks like the gospel. Mm. No, He designed it that way from the outset. And this, of course, shows us His great love for us, that He would do that. Marriage is that important. It's about God's plan to save us in Christ. Perhaps the most important aspect of your ministry and your effort to live a life that glorifies God and testifies to the truth of the gospel is your marriage. There's a reason why the requirements for being an elder largely have to do with that man's family and his marriage. So, your marriage is arguably the most important ministry you have. Your marriage speaks about the gospel. What does it say? Your marriage is a window through which the relationship between Christ and the church can be seen. How clear or darkened is that window? So let me just review some of these foundational truths that we've unpacked in rapid fashion. Your wife is an image bearer. Your husband is an image bearer meant to represent God in the world. Men and women are different. The differences between 
A husband and a wife are by design, and they're meant to be opportunities for partnering together to bear spiritual fruit for God. A part of God's design for your marriage is for the two of you to be one flesh, growing and showing marital unity both physically and in all of your life together. Marriages for God and His glory only for your satisfaction secondarily. If marriage displays the gospel union between Christ and His church, then your marriage, of course, again I say, is perhaps your most important ministry. Now if you're single, was this your view of marriage? And maybe how could these foundational texts help you assist your married friends in the church so that they bear fruit in their marriages. It's at least substance and information for you to pray through as you pray through marriages in the church. Marriage has lots of benefits, lots of blessings. Married life can be a life of wonderful companionship. Married life opens the door to a level of intimacy with another person that can be deeply, deeply satisfying. Marriage can and often brings the blessing of children. Of course, that's in some ways the first and primary fruit that God intended to be born out of marital unity. We look to God, of course, to provide that. But we would do well to remember that our marriages are for God. They're there to serve Him and glorify Him in every way. And God has determined how they work The mar- marriage is a picture of the good news that Jesus has died and risen so that we might become one with Him through the Spirit. Marriage is about the Gospel. Now lastly, through this weekend, I want to encourage you to resist the temptation to make having a great marriage your highest goal. Now that saying sounds strange, doesn't it? Don't make it your highest goal. Make knowing your Savior and understanding the Gospel your highest goal. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, if you set knowing Jesus and understanding how the Gospel applies to all of your life, your highest goal, you will be well on your way to a more God-glorifying marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these amazing texts that no matter how many times we go back to them, they are stunning. We never plumb the depths of them and understand them completely or entirely. Certainly, even the things we've understood in the past about these amazing texts, your word to us, we need to learn over and over and over again. Oh Lord, Like I prayed at the very beginning, give us soft hearts to learn from these texts so that we know you more and more as our Lord and Savior. We understand your gospel, and that causes us to walk in greater obedience to you in our marriages. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to take uh, just 
five, maybe 10 minutes uh, of question and answer. So let me open it up for that. You provide the questions, I'll provide the answers. <laughs> yes, Wyckoff. Just make sure you speak loudly. Carson, can we get the microphone? Uh, ben, could you pass it up to Wyckoff? Right there. Thank you very much, Pastor Brian. Um, I'd like to ask, why the place of uh, compatibility in terms of physiological, cultural compatibility? Physiological compatibility? Like personality, temperament, and all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, what consideration should we give to them uh, when you are considering marriage? I think it dep depends on how you evaluate compatibility because uh, you have to have some criteria for that. If you're a single person and you're considering what kind of person should I marry, I think that the most important thing is that um, the person that you consider marrying trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior is a growing Christian and is committed to the same kind of God-honoring life that you're committed to. And that takes some exploring. I mean, first and foremost, I would say they need to be a person that's committed to membership in a gospel-preaching local church. Um, when you get those things in place, and that really opens the field wide open, I would say. Um, then I think a lot of those other factors that you're talking about, personality, disposition, I think a lot of those things take a back seat. Because the fact of the matter is, is that no matter how much you think you're like that other pe person, um, you're not really like that other person. In your case, she's a she and you're a he. And if you were to get married, you're going to find lots of differences between yourself. Um, so I really think, uh, I'm not saying there doesn't need to be some kind of attraction to that person, but you need to be attracted to the right things in that person. And I would say they are included in what I was listing first. Godliness, growing Christian character, the right priorities in life, wisdom. Those are the things you should be attracted to. So when you say uh, it comes secondary or you shouldn't give consideration to them? I'm sorry? Would you say it is secondary to the things you just mentioned or <coughs> you shouldn't give consideration to them at all? I would say it's a far, far, far distant second. Yeah, I would. Now, a lot of those things, some people might call personality or might call disposition, but I would say that has something to do with their Christian character, let's say. If they say, you know, my personality is that I'm really argumentative. I really like to get in fights. <laughs> uh, now, we're talking about Christian character there. We're not, we're not talking about personality. 
So maybe some of it is, a, is, is in the definitions of what you're talking about. I, I would say as well, I mean, physiologically, I think you're thinking, you're thinking physically, right? Mm. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that's um, a big factor at all. In fact, I think it's a distant third. Yeah. Good question, Wyckoff. One more question, and then we'll take a break. Yeah, Bhuvan. Thanks for your talk. Um, you spoke about singleness, you spoke about marriage. Um, just a question up here. What would uh, either you say or uh, the Bible would say about a divorce and remarriage? Um, and um, also, if I remember the Bible, uh, there was something about um, a divorce is okay if, if there's only for unfaithfulness. I think that's probably the only reason. What would you say, for example, if um, there is uh, violence, right, you know, for self-protection? Uh, yeah. Um, just some comments around that. That's a really huge topic. That, and no one's going to get a break if I answer it in full. <laughs> in fact, I might not even be able to give my second talk. Um, but it, it's a good question. Um, I'll tell you what our position in the church, in, in Covenant Hope Church is. Uh, our position is that um, the scripture uh, gives an allowance of um, marital unfaithfulness as an allowance for allowable divorce. Not necessary divorce. Marriages can be healed. Marriages can be repaired and restored even after unfaithfulness when there's been adultery. We um, would be very, very slow to ever recommend divorce, although there's, you know, that's not completely off the table. Um, we would also say that the scripture allows for um, divorce in some circumstances when there is abuse, because that abuse is tantamount to the spouse that's abusing being the one who's forcing that other spouse to leave. They're forcing them out of the covenant relationship through abuse. Now that's really, that's, that's just a brief answer. And each situation requires um, lots of wisdom and insight. Uh, Pastor Mark, yeah? Yeah, I was just going to say, we've written some on this, and it's actually posted on our, on our website, so I'll, yeah. just, I'll shoot that out on the notice board if you're interested to read the papers that the elders have written. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, so that's our position. Good question, excellent question. Um, let's take a break, and then we'll come back at, um, oh, in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm.